All right, here we are, completing what we started last week. This is the Rabbeinu Yonah Arba Kitot, Four Groups of Jews podcast. We are discussing uh, the groups of Jews who will not, sadly, meet the Divine Presence, get to greet the Divine Presence. We're just about finished with the liars. And we're stuck in this, uh, I'm playing favorites, I'm being clear on playing, playing favorites. We're stuck in this discussion of whether or not one may be allowed to fabricate a quote, may be allowed to say that so and so said something when we don't when when he didn't actually say it, right? So that's the the question before us. We started it last time, and this time I basically want to present two approaches and show the complications of each approach. Now, one of them is approach that I prefer, the approach of the Alei Tamar. Alei Tamar is a series of books I never would have come across, other than that I have a Bar Ilan, and you do a search, and sometimes something comes your way, which is why I was very fortunate to meet the Alei Tamar. He was born, this is, his name was Rabbi Sachar ben Svi Tamar. He was born in Poland in 1896, 56-56. He studied in in Poland, in Galicia, during the First World War. He went to Germany and England, so he was a rabbi there. And in 1933, he moved to Eretz Yisrael. He was a rabbi in Tel Aviv. And then he wrote a lot of comments. And then other people, his son-in-law, Rabbi Abraham Zvi Rabinowitz, edited his comments into books on the Yushalmi, but it's not a commentary on the Yushalmi. It's like insights, like things that come your way. So it's, a, I think, a, somewhat of a hard book to learn, unless you're going to just read it straight and learn whatever you have to say. He passed away in 1982. I actually first really came aware of him because uh, Rav Chaim David Alevi has a eulogy, not a eulogy, has a speech that he gave when dedicating a library of his books at Yeshivat Haratzion. Uh, I found it in researching my previous book, The Judaism of the Postkim. And he has a comment, he has a few comments on our topic that I think are worth thinking about and paying attention to. And these are the ones that I prefer to the second view we'll see today. So in Brachot, in the Yushami Brachot, in the fourth chapter, he brings up this idea that Rashim Psachim on Kuf Yud Bet on 112, on the idea in Bikashlomar Davarshein Yishma Labriot, if you want to say something, people will believe it and they'll accept it from you. He, tchila, it says, he has Tchila, I think we have Hitalebi Ilan Gadol. Attach yourself to a great tree. Right? And Rashi, it said, or the Gemara, it seemed to say, or Rashi says, I'm sorry, I'm just, and more b'shem adam gadol. Say it in the name of an important person. Rabbi Tamar points out that Rashi on the A Yaakov, it says, Tomer shimativ mishmo. Right? That's what we thought. That's what many people think the simple reading is. You can just quote somebody, even though you didn't hear it from them. Says Rav Tamar, Klomar. That is to say, now when you say that is to say, what you mean is, I'm interpreting this, but I believe this is the correct interpretation. If you want to be able to, lechanik kolotanir ganim. Nirganim is a category Rabbi Yonah will actually get to later. But Nirganim, people are going to like try to deny the truth. They're going to deny what you're saying. They're going to try to, you know, pretend the world is otherwise. You want to try to choke them metaphorically. They say because they don't have the logic to say it or because they just like arguing and they don't want to accept the truth. You should rely on a great tree. And then he adds, either go to this great tree, great person, and get his agreement. And then you can quote him by saying, and I asked so-and-so and he agreed. Or say it in his name, even though he didn't say it explicitly, but you know from knowing the way he thinks, you're sure that he would have said it. Now, that's already, to me, a little bit dangerous because people assume things about their even their rebellion, who they knew well. People assume things that are not always correct. Then he adds, 
Behelech Rucho Vidyato. Sorry, Vidato, because you are an uh, expert in the way he thinks and his opinions. And then you can do that to, 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 to strengthen the halakha that's very clear to you. Negative people just want to argue against you. That's a lot of a concession to the other view, the view that you can just straight up lie and say, oh, so-and-so said something when they didn't. So, but that's the first step in Rav Tamar. Second step is in the Yushami and Sanhedrin, uh, in the 10th chapter. He then says, Now, with this idea, which we'll see in a second, I can explain the Gemara in Pesach, which says, Attach yourself to a great tree. Learn, study with a great rabbi, and then you'll be able to quote it. Oh, or he says, maybe it means, you just say, I heard, I heard that a great rabbi said, people say, who? You don't say who, you don't know who. Veins is Sheker. It's not a lie. Shekein af katan, because even like an ordinary person, you or me, right? In kivein lalacha, if we get the halacha right, hareze ki'ilu amaragadol. So the set. So he's got two ideas already that are avoiding the lying issue. Issue that possibly number one is study before a great rabbi. Then you'll hear lots and lots of things from that great rabbi, and then you'll be able to quote a great rabbi all the time. Second possibility. If you know the truth and you can't get other people to believe it, say, I heard a great rabbi said it. Oh, that's a lie you didn't hear from a great rabbi. Not true. If you're saying the absolute truth, although, again, the question here is, we, we, as we watch other people be certain they're sharing a truth, that they're certain of the truth, when we become certain of the truth, I think it behooves us to think about it and be very careful and be very concerned. So if we've heard it from great rabbis from before us, then we, so, but that's what he suggests. That any of us, if we're saying something that's absolutely the truth, we count for those purposes as a great rabbi, and therefore it's not a lie to say a great rabbi said this. And also, he says, "Im if you know they're not going to accept the truth, he says, changing the quote and cleaning the quote comes from someone who didn't come. It's like changing the truth to create peace, because." In order that Torah be observed properly, you can change the truth because that's like a version of peace. So the Torah being kept is like a version of shalom. That's what he says. Then he adds, however, it's clear, because another addition piece to it, that once people agree to what you're saying and they accept it, you have to, uh, you have to then share your view, your reasoning, and how you got to it and why you told the not truth. I Meaning you can't stay as a permanent lie, it's a temporary strategy to get people to accept something. And once it's accepted, once the momentum is on the side of the truth, then you reveal what happened. Now, nowadays, I'm not sure what happened with that, because, for example, I've been struck in this context where there are people who have been in a job for 10, 20 years, especially in, in academic institutions. And then they find out that they, they lied on their resume. I'm not in favor of lying on a resume at all. But the immediate thing is they have to completely resign from their job and step down because... I think because they lied, but it's an interesting question because the Rabbi Tamar is, uh, is suggesting that once something gets embedded as an accepted thing, then you can go back and tell the truth. So let's say somebody, for whatever reason, had a hole in their resume, knew they could do the job, they get the job, they spend t- 10 years in the job, they're doing the job well. In, in our circumstances, you can never say, you know what, I lied, but I'm doing the job well, I love to stay in the job, and I'll make amends. So here too, I wonder about that. Because the Gemara in Shabbos and Kuf Ted Vol, 
where it says, It says that a letter came from Israel in the name of Yochanan. The Me'iri write, writes there, it's not that he said it, it was to convince them so they uh, support and accept the prohibition. That's how Rashi says, the Me'iri says, look at me, uh, no, I'm sorry, the Ali Tamar, Rabbi Tamar says, look at me in Yaakov, <laughs> who says, how could it be that you tell a lie? Uh, so according to what the according to what he suggested here, it was, you'll say it's as if Rabbi Yochanan said it, because if you hear it from whoever it is, it's as if the greatest Torah scholar said it. But that's already another stretch, because now you're giving an actual name for, to it. But he ends with, in order that they should accept the true Torah, you can, ex- you can express yourself, as we've spoken about in previous weeks, with a language that can be heard both ways. Right? And it's not really a shifter. So you see, as he's giving all these possibilities and searching through the previous statements that there are on this issue, you see that he's struggling to find a way to say, well, maybe it's okay to lie in some ways, maybe not, I'm not sure, but here are ways to get around the, the most stark versions of it. That's one side of the question. We'll come to some Rishonim, who I think take a completely different view. I haven't seen it quoted, but I mean, it's Rishonim, I haven't seen it pointed out. Before we get there, I want to contrast it to, again, the Barilan showed me, there's a, a, a journal called Alon HaMishpat. And Alon HaMishpat, there's an article, I don't even know what, what issue of it was because I didn't copy it down, but there's an issue, there's an article on Gnevadat, tricking other people, permissible ways to do so, and it's written by a Rav Yosef Fleischman. I looked him up. He is the supervisor. He oversees the website called Din. He's a head of a base did called the Tivot Chayim, which is from the Machon Yushalayim Ledayanut. Okay, I just looked. It's from Alon Mishpat of issue number 47, which was from 2012, and Bet. So it's uh, 10 years ago, let's say. It's around 10 years ago. And he has many, many points. I'm just bringing some of the ones that I found most salient and interesting to our discussion. He says, if people don't know the truth, and because they're they're distanced from the truth, they're not understanding of the truth, they're not going to do something or they'll stop others from doing something. And we are sure, and again, those words, we are sure, I think are always dangerous ones because I think we're never supposed to be completely a million percent sure because what we are sure of, others can be sure the other way. And it's a very, very slippery slope, which life is lived on a slippery slope. I agree with that for sure. We know that if they knew the truth, they would agree. So according to many posts, he says, which is, I think, correct, I'm not disagreeing with him, you can cheat, you can mislead them. According to this, for example, he says, you have an elderly person who's not really thinking about their medical care objectively or correctly or, or with a real awareness of it, and therefore is, now his example is, refusing treatment that the doctors think will help them. I think very often you have the other as well. You have people who are going forward with treatment because doctors are pushing for it, when I think that very often the doctors are pushing for it where its uh, benefits aren't so clear. But that's a different discussion. But the idea is, he says, you can mislead that person in order to get him to do whatever it is. That's his idea. That's, to me, a very hard question. Let's say, for example, the doctors say, let's just say, the doctors say there's a 60% chance that this will work which is the majority, right? Which sounds like it's probably going to work. And the elderly person, for whatever reason, says, I don't want to do it. I'm tired. I think it is. So I'm not saying they should or shouldn't do it. Maybe they should do it. Maybe they shouldn't. But what my Fleischman is saying, you can say, I understand the doctors say it's a 95% chance of working just to get them to do what they should be doing. 
that's the word in English for this is paternalistic, but that's true of every uh, one of the permutations we're talking about here. And that's the struggle with Rashi's version of that Hitalebi Angadol. Rashi seems to think they were allowed to quote, and may have thought they were allowed to quote people who did not say it in the name of getting people to accept something. He adds Rabbi Fleischman. If you have a parent who doesn't understand, this is now, you could argue that the elderly person is a life and death issue. Now, I'm not belittling the study of Torah. So imagine you have a parent who doesn't understand the value of learning Torah and wants his son not to learn another year in yeshiva. And it's clear, again, it's clear that if only he knew how valuable the study of Torah was, of course he would agree. He says this child is allowed to mislead the parent, that the parent should think that after another year of learning, the child will stop, even though the child knows right now that he doesn't have to do that, and that's not considered that's not considered lying, cheating, stealing, tricking. Now, I, I don't believe in any way whatsoever that I am a Torah scholar of the level of my flesh. I really just don't, because I just don't know a lot of stuff. But this, to me, is, a, is, is part of the big problem here. This Rashi, and I'm going to bring Rishonim, other Rishonim at the end of today's podcast, but this Rashi is leading people to construct a whole theory of the right to just mislead people whenever it's really, really important, when we're sure enough of the truth. And that carries over in lots of things. It creates a culture, I believe. It creates a culture in which your hold on the truth is very, very slippery. It was one thing when we were talking in previous weeks about Hashem changes for the sake of Shalom, therefore your life changes for the sake of Shalom. That to me seemed also dangerous, also worrisome, but much more circumscribed. Now, based on a quote about the idea, the principality of quoting a great Torah scholar, where we saw about Tamar, for example, say it's all about that there's a truth there, and I'm just quoting the scholar to get people to accept the truth. Here we're saying now, you know, you can change the, on lots of issues just because you need to get it to a certain result. And I think that can lead to lots of things. So he goes on to say later in the article, we've also seen a few places in the Gemara where they allow you to change the truth. He quotes our Gemara in Pesach that we've been talking about if you want to get choked, meaning if you want to hang yourself on a big tree, he quotes the Rashi, you're allowed to say it in a way that people will listen to it. He quotes Gemara in Arabin, which says, Rabbi Yossi, there's a bright that says that if you have two people, um... I'm sorry, the bright the Gemara quoted the Brita with Rabbi Yossi and then commented, it's not actually Rabbi Yossi who said it, but they quoted in the name of Rabbi Yossi so that people would accept it. That's the other example of this idea that we have people in the Gemara doing this. So the Rabbi, Rabbi Fleischman, reading perfectly reasonably, says, Rabbaz said to Rabbi Yossi, a halacha in the name of Rabbi Yossi, even though Rabbi Yossi didn't say it. Again, that's not a, it's not a misreading of the Gemara. But it's a reading of the Gemara that presents a very problematic ethic to it. And maybe, and I would wonder. So again, there's other ways to read it, but this is a certainly fine way. And he points out, as we saw previously, the Mangan of Ram seems to accept the Gemara at face value. But then he says, that's only if you know for sure that the Allah is that way. That's an interesting question. So it could be, for example, you told me that all the Rishonim, all the Rishonim, the Allah is this way. That would be something like that. But that's a much rarer than we think. As soon as there's a significant machloket, it would seem to be that even Rabbi Fleischman is saying, you can't do that. But you're, the point is that really this is the Allah. If everybody knows it, they would have, knows it, they would have accepted it. And therefore, you're allowed to mislead them. And he quotes a Birch Yosef, which is the Chida on Shokhan Aruch. Then you can quote your Rebbe so that they'll accept it. And so too, a Gemara Pesachim that says that Shmuel holds a is like Rebbe Mechavero. 
Rabbi Shmuel happens to have felt that on this particular issue, Reb, we follow Rebbe as the halacha, even though there are many people or more than one person who disagrees with Rebbe, even though in general the rule is that we only follow Rebbe when it's him against one other person. And the Gemara says, He said, I'll switch the names. So that way, it'll turn out that the other, the group that people are more likely to accept, they'll be the Isser group. And that the Ainu Shishmuel Amalim is Shem Rabim. Shmuel said as if it was the majority, the, the multiple opinion, the, the opinion of many, so that people would accept it. Now, he, he, he concedes that there, the Chada, the Chida, the same Chida, who has a shoot called Yosef Ometz, says that it's only a great scholar like Shmuel who's allowed to do that. Now, if we accepted that, the reveals of Reflesh is going to, uh, going to uh, limit that in a second. If we accepted that, that would solve some significant level of our problems because you could say this whole, all of the indication of the Gemara, think about it, it was a rabbi of Yosef, it was Shmuel, and all these situations with Rabbi Akiva saying something to Rabbi Shimon Yochai, you could say that there's a level which people reach, which part of the problem is if you think you reach that level, very often it means you haven't, but that's a different discussion. But there might be a level that people reach where they have the right to do this, where they have the right to shape the truth according to what it is. But however it is, it's not lying to the other person because since they're willing to accept it from the right person, or if they knew that it was the truth, then you're taking the truth and just presenting it in the way they can hear it. You know, that there is an element of that to it as well. He's saying, he's saying, I'm just shaping it so they can hear what is the truth they should and, and would be accepting anyway if they weren't so stubborn about it, which I think is a valid point. It's just, you know, the levels to which we, the, 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 the extent to which we go with that is where we have to think about things and be very careful about. Okay. Then he says, there's also a Shoal Vinishal, which I, Shoal Vinishal is. Rav Chalfon Moshe Cohen, who's rabbi in Jerba, which I can't get into now, but is a fascinating community, an old, old community. And he's a fascinating guy. I encountered him a few times in my in my research for Judaism and the Postkim. In any case, he says, he understood, Rabbi, I'm sorry, Rabbi Fleischman says that in Shuchol Menishal, he understood that Birch Yosef is saying, it seems like lying to establish the truth is okay. And from there, the Shitnol of Inishal went further and said, a woman who knows that she's really not a Mita, not really prohibited her husband, but the reason that she would give for it wouldn't be accepted as a reason to accept that she's... So the discussion there is about sometimes a woman claims that she's a Mita and she doesn't really mean it, and then she has to prove that she didn't really mean it. Maybe the reason that she gives for that she didn't really mean it wouldn't be convincing to anybody. So she can give another reason, says Ramosha Kohen, she can give a completely different reason, not a true reason at all, because so that they'll declare her Torah. Again, an example of lying for the sake of a higher truth. Now, then he adds, I have to tell you, that's not always going to be allowed. We've seen many posts, he says, who wonder about, which I, we would have thought would be exactly the same thing here. Can a judge on a case, let's imagine a judge, there's three judges on a case. One of the judges is confident the halacha is different than what the other two say. So what he says to himself is, you know what I'll do? I'll say I don't know, which isn't true. He's confident he knows what the halacha is. But I'll say I don't know. If, I have, if a judge says I don't know, you have to add more judges to the court. He says, we'll add two more judges. And then as we investigate it more, maybe the verdict will come out right. And we say he can't do that. 
You have to say the truth. So what are you going to do? Doesn't he knows? He knows that the truth is his way, and yet we say he's not allowed to lie and say I don't know. Now, remember, he's not even lying and saying the wrong thing. He's just like saying I don't know, which isn't true about him. So that you can do that. So that's a um, that's a, he quotes the Revolution Yosef writes about that at length. So what, however, we're going to put together our idea that maybe some people can lie for some purposes, whatever explanation we give has to also include this simple accepted halachic fact that a judge in a court case can't do that. You could theoretically say, well, because the audience he's dealing with is more sophisticated, except that remember, we saw that Rabbi would tell Rabbi Yosef something with the wrong names attached to it. So that complicates the question. Then he adds, or Fleischman adds, that also a Gemara in Brachos says that there was a situation where there was a Rabba was with a caravan, Rabba Barchana, and they weren't going to be willing to wait for him if he just went back to, he forgot to bench, and he wanted to go back to where he had been to bench to say the grace after meals, where he'd eaten. But if he, if he had said that to them, they would say, we're not waiting for you. And he, didn't want, he wanted them to wait for him. So he says to them, I forgot, um, I forgot Yonash uh, Zahab. I had a golden dove that's worth a lot of money. So Fleischman assumes that what he means is that if they knew how significant the value of benching, of saying the grace after meals, of Vikaramazon, in the place where the person ate, had they known that, they would have agreed because it's at least as valuable, if not more valuable, than the golden dove. Just an example of their misplaced priorities. So Revealed Fleischman is saying, you see, or he's assuming that the purpose, that the point of that story is that when the people have misplaced priorities, I can pray or I can work on their priorities and tell them the truth that they need to hear in order to get them to do what really they would agree to do or not. That's an example of that. So what, you're, what, what I'm trying to point out in this sugya is, he's going to quote Revealed Fleischman in a second. What I'm trying to point out in the sugya is that you have lots of indications of the Gemara of this vague idea and the question is where and how and if we can apply it, which of us can apply it, and how we can apply it, and how it was meant originally. And that's not well established and well set by the Gemara. We've seen some of the Akronim on the issue. Unless it's been Rabbi Fleischman, they'll look back a little bit. So Rabbi Fleischman goes on and says, Rav Moshe Feinstein, in Yeridea 3.133, seems to disagree with this whole idea. He quotes the Gemara Kulin and says, uh, the Gemara Kulin and Tari Dalit, and Moshe Feinstein says, even if we're talking here about somebody who's selling an animal and he knows that the animal didn't die because of a snake bite. So the question is how, whether you can eat an animal or use its hide, make shoes out of its hide, and things like that. So the worry was if the animal had been killed by a snake, the venom might still be in the animal and therefore there'd be a danger even to wear the clothing, I think, off of it. He says, even if the, the seller knows there was no snake involved and therefore knows that there's no danger, nonetheless, there's an ona. There's a fraudulent element to selling it by and not mentioning it. And Ramosha Feinstein compared it to situations with um, witnesses on a momenos issue, with witnesses on a momenos issue, on a monetary issue, let's say you have three people who know that so-and-so owes them money, owes them a money. We say that what they cannot do is to have one of them say, you owe me a money, you know, whatever the number is, $1,000. You can't have one of them say, meaning, let's say he owes 200 to one and 400 to another and 400 to another, but they don't have any witnesses. So they all know that this is what happened. So they say, you know what? You'll just claim a thousand, and the two of us will give the testimony. 
not allowed. Now, why is that allowed? And the reason is because you have to stay far away from lying. So there, isn't that, doesn't that show that even though you're, you're, you're testifying to a truth, and we're not doubting the truth here, even though the truth is X, you can't lie to get to that truth. So that's what we're talking about. That's the question. That's the challenge. That's the issue that we have here. And therefore, says So how does Moshe deal with these issues? Right? So that's a problem. That's a question. That's an issue. But you see Moshe Feinstein upholding the value of the truth and of the staying away from far from lying, even in the service of truth. Then he adds, it's also unclear. It seems like Moshe Feinstein contradicts himself. Because in Orachayim Dalit, he says that a Balat Shuvah, let's say there's a woman who has, who one time lived a non-observant life and now is observant, right? She can say, she can't say she's never, she can't say she's never had a relationship with somebody, with a man, if she has. But she can say it was one time, even if it was many times. And his explanation was that since she's now repented, she's become uh, an observant woman, so clearly she's never going to do it again. That's what we assume. I think it's an interesting assumption, but let's assume we're hoping and we plan that she'll never do it again. And therefore he says she can only do it. She can say she only did it once because that's all that's relevant. So it says reflection. I understand. According to Moshe, right, when he wrote about the selling the shoes from the, from the animal that wasn't bitten by a snake, he said, you can't lie about that. But if she tells the whole story, he wouldn't marry her. So even in the selling of the shoes case, we had said, I can sell them. We said, Ramosha Feinstein said, you can't sell them the shoes claiming it didn't come from an animal that, that I know wasn't bitten by a snake, but it's not provable that it wasn't bitten by a snake. You have to tell them the story. So how come here? She doesn't have to tell them the story because the man's marrying her. Isn't it the man's right? If so Ramosha Feinstein's point is, it's none of his business. As long as she tells him she's had relations before, how many times is not his business and he wants to marry, he doesn't want to marry her back. So it says reflection, but I understand Rav Moshe Feinstein, the same way that it is fraudulent, that you said it's fraudulent to sell somebody's shoes that that are in a situation where the halacha is, we have to tell the person what's going on, so go ahead. So he leaves that as an open question. He suggests that uh, he thought that an unmarried woman is a different situation because she's not going to find a shit up, that would be so terrible, and therefore helps her out. So you end up with this uh, complicated set of calculations about where truth is absolutely necessary or not. I want to point out a couple of other options that I don't didn't see people mention. I would point out, the Gemara Brachel says, Rabbi Ezra says, if somebody prays behind their rabbi, their teacher, and also somebody says, somebody says something he didn't hear from the rabbi, Causes the divine presence to leave the Jewish people. Notice we are here talking about Rabbi Yonah's uh, groups of liars who are never going to greet the divine presence. Here's a Gemara. Rabbi Lezer says, it seems like misquoting your, saying something in the name of your rabbi, you didn't hear from him, is uh, is actually negative. And we've spent a lot of time because Rabbi Akiva had told Rabbi Shimon Yochai, in some sense, hang yourself on a great scholar. And Rashi had seemed to say that you could quote him even though he didn't say it. The Rambam in Hilpos Talmud Torah says, you're not allowed to say something you didn't hear from your Rebbe, and she has kir shame omro. You have to mention who you did hear it from. So he seems to think there is no right to misquote, to quote somebody for the purposes of getting people to believe it. He's going to say it's not true. 
The rush in brothels there says, He seems to say explicitly, if somebody quotes their teacher, on the name of the teacher, that's what the Gemara meant when it says, which is a commentary on the rush. By Rav Yom Lipman Heller, it's a reminder of a time when people actually studied the rush. I don't know, unfortunately, or in, in many ways, people don't study the rush much as they used to, I think. But he says, you say the name of your Rebbe, he quotes the Rambam, you have to mention your Rebbe's name, the Rebbe who said it, you have to mention who said it, or you have to mention that you heard it from your Rebbe or not from your Rebbe. He quotes the Torah and the Beisil say, he says, the worry is that when you have a person who's a student of, an, of a particular Rebbe, and then they say something, people hear that for sure that Rebbe said it, because that's their main teacher. And therefore, you have to always tell people that whatever you're saying that you didn't hear from your particular teacher, you have to say it so they know. Because otherwise, they'll think that it is, and that if it's the wrong thing, then you're mistreating your Rebbe, and people are going to are going to um, look down on the teacher for it. And then the Divrei Chamudel quotes the Gemara Pesach we've been struggling with. If you want to get, uh, if you want to get whatever the phrasing means, but attach yourself to a great tree, Divrei Chamudel thinks that Rambam and the Rosh are specifically addressing that. And they're saying what that means is, if you're known as the student of so-and-so, be careful that whatever you say, Stam, without a name attached to it, you heard from the, your master, from your teacher. And if you didn't hear from your teacher, say who you heard it from, because otherwise it's a big problem. Shokhanarov in Yaradeh says, you shouldn't say something, quotes this idea. You shouldn't say something you didn't hear from your Rebbe until you mention it in the name of, of who you heard it from. And the Shach there says, but a Shmua, a, a, a Torah topic that you heard from your Rebbe, if people know this from your Rebbe, you can just say it without mentioning the name. Now, I know, for example, students of the Rub important, well-known students of the Rub, and they're careful to always quote the Rub. They don't just say, everything I say comes from the Rub. They quote the Rub, Rabbi Salavachik, when they heard it from him. They don't quote this, but theoretically, somebody's known to be such a student, they can say things that, the, that their teacher said without quoting the teacher. And the Bach wrote, but that's only if everybody knows that you didn't learn it from anyone else. Every part of your knowledge. But nowadays, our great Torah scholars rarely have learned before only one teacher, and therefore it would be different. If you learn before even two teachers, you have to mention, says the Bach, you have to, the Shach quoting the Bach says, you have to mention who, because people don't know who your general quote is. And therefore, uh, and also, says the Shach, uh, nowadays, people assume when you say something without a name attached to it, that it's yours, that you thought of it. And therefore, you can't do that. And therefore, you have to quote, uh, because it's like wrapping yourself in a talus that's not really yours. That's the Shach. And the Yerach HaShulchan there says, he quotes the Shulchan Aruch, and he says, you can't say it's down like the Shach said. And he says he thinks the Shach, um, uh, the Shach came up with it on his own. And he quotes the rest of the Shach about Rabbi Jebetalas and says, Yerach HaShulchan, the Isur Godol Hu. That's a very big, uh, it's a very big, uh, very big misstep. You're not allowed to do that. So you end up having, and I'm going a little bit over time and I apologize, but what you end up having is that I wonder whether the Magen of Ram writes what he writes in Orachayim our, in our based on that Gemara and Psachim. And you have a whole discussion that we've seen and you have a whole complicated calculus that some people come up with. But I think if you look in Yeridea, you have another, a whole other way to look at that Gemara that relieves many, many of these problems that seem to me perhaps to be somewhat overlooked. You end up with a complicated story. Next time we're going to start on flatterers of Kanafim. We've already done Kat Leitzim and Kat Shakarim is what we're finished with this time. We're going to pick up with Kanafim next time. But for this, I just want to point out that what we, with, with, with our whole discussion of lying, 
we end up with this complicated calculus about where bending the truth, stretching the truth, maybe even breaking the truth is or is not allowed, depending on the issues that we've raised. So thanks for joining us for this episode of Arminiona's Four Keto. Let's all hope that by studying these things and learning these lessons, we will one day soon greet the Divine Presence. Thanks for joining us. See you next time here at the VBM with Arminiona's Four Keto.